The following is brought to you with no commercial interruptions. Listen now. You have like uh, you have many, many um, years of going to uh, films. Um, if your if your daughter is into um, kids' movies, you'll have like you're getting into that block now where mm-hmm. you find yourself going to uh, an enormous number of movies, and you're going to be trying to figure out whether or not. You find them enjoyable, or oh, yeah. you're finding them enjoyable because you're trying to find them enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just got the uh, for some reason our our uh, our satellite plan or whatever just added the uh, boomerang channel. So there's been a lot of old Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry oh, and stuff like that. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I'm watching those like, oh my gosh, I love this stuff, and then they have some new Scooby Doo episodes. Oh, that they've made in the past couple of years. And it's like, oh, wow, these are pretty good too. And, and even the classic Scoobies and whatnot, when you can get those. I think one of my favorite yeah. things that I ever did with my kids when they were younger was, um, was I had the first year of The Simpsons on DVD and taking through that. Mm-hmm. Because you can see, I mean, obviously, whatever channel that is, FXX or FX plays The Simpsons almost continuously every day of the week. But you really see yeah. the really early ones, and they're just so good. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've had it on, and she'll come in and start watching it too, and then they'll say or do some things that are kind of questionable, like "Uh oh, I hope this is going over your head." I look at it that that uh, when I was like four, five, six years old, I was watching the old classic Warner Brothers cartoons and and such. So, and they weren't any less uh, interesting, shall we say? So I think I think it's it's all worth oh, yeah. absorbing. <laughs> you gotta you gotta build your base of comedy and uh, sense of humor, and then you can add on all the <sighs> crappy stuff. I guess after that. <laughs> wow. Welcome to season one, episode twelve of the Better Band Podcast, hosted by Brandon Palomo, an all-encompassing trip through the Pearl Jam catalog. Each episode, my guest and I go track by track through every album, soundtrack, and single to discover why you simply can't find a better band. This is Brandon, and I'm here with my guest, Patrick Bogle, talking about Master Slave. How's it going, Patrick? It's going very good, Brandon. How are you? I am doing well, and I'm sticking with it as I'm taking my English classes online and finding out that that's the correct way to say it. (laughs) Uh, So we're here at the end, unless you had one of the the import albums of 10, is the last thing you're hearing is you're drifting off after, what, five minutes of silence or so? I don't know. I but I feel like it was. It's only a. It's a, a fleeting part. It's like maybe twenty or thirty seconds that they go into silence before it bleeds into it. Is it? Oh, maybe it's like five. Oh, yeah, it's five minutes at the from the start of release, right? And the then end. it goes to the end. So, oh, damn it! There I go, losing more credentials I for my Pearl Jam knowledge. I won't tell anyone if you don't. Oh, well, as long as you don't listen to the live on four legs episode where they quiz me, then we're safe. I didn't do quite well on my own quiz on that one. So that's quite right. Oh, 
<laughs> did you get more than one right? I did get more than one right. Well, then you did better than me. Okay. <laughs> well, but but before we start, before we get into this, I have to ask you, Patrick, when did you first hear of Pearl Jam? So my Pearl Jam experience began when I was in my freshman year of college in 1991. Um, and I, my first like sort of recollection is obviously um, Nirvana had exploded um, that fall in, into the music scene. Um, but my first recollection with Pearl Jam was seeing the Alive video and just being my interest being piqued um, of who is this? What, what is this? Who are these people? And what <laughs> this music? Um, it just, it interested me enough to be wanting to, you know, catch it again and, and figure out what it was about. Um, but it wasn't right away. I didn't like immediately gravitate and like, I got to run to the record store and, and get this record. It just, it sounded interesting. My musical background really was, um, you know, mostly from what I heard from all of my siblings. Um, I had, I'm the youngest of 11 kids. Um, oh, yeah. So, um, I've got a vast array of influences. I basically grew up hearing the entire Beatles catalog constantly. Um, I have another brother who was a huge fan of the who, which was, um, very advantageous to be able to, to get to hear their music. And, um, then, uh, another, actually a couple of my brothers that were into the grateful dead, but I didn't get into their music until about college. Um, and then my sisters, um, we're all um, big into 80s uh, new wave, early 80s new wave, and and sort of those quasi punk bands of the 80s um, that were more less punk bands, more that new wave um, uh, punk and uh, post punk. Yeah, post punk for sure. Um, and you know, just because of that, you know, we there's a couple of radio stations on Long Island that would constantly be on um, that were actually quite good. They weren't. Uh, you know, the typical fair. So I would hear a lot of the Ramones and, uh, you know, things of that nature that were just there and, and interesting sounding. Um, but I was never hugely into any of the, of the musicians that, that would have been like of that era. You know, I just started hearing things like Jane's Addiction when I was going out of high school and into college. And it was, you know, interesting because it consumed a lot of content at that point because that was sort of the early stages still of mtv when they played music mm -hmm. um but nothing was like you know I, I had this sort of weird mindset in my mind that everything that was new couldn't be as good as these things that you know that i'd been hearing like the beatles were pinnacle and some of what i'd heard from the who this is like you know this is pinnacle nothing can beat this anything else that's coming after is is not um is not that's authentic, but I little did I know because the the music world at that point in time was about to just completely upend. Um, and so yeah. I think from there it was, uh, you know, obviously modern rock radio and radio stations started completely turning over, and you know it was it was just about constant with Seattle grunge, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. Uh, Alice in Chains, it just was all, you know, being just 
just constant feed of that that new sound that was changing the landscape of music. I dabbled in um, a little bit of like, you know, Guns N' Roses, and I liked them. And at that same time, that was at that time that Use Your Illusion was coming out. Um, and I still was interested in that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's funny, the thing that that uh, at that same time, that was those that those records came out and then Guns N' Roses started to unravel. Izzy Stradlin was kicked out of the band and not to go to an insane sort of uh, offbeat path from this. But that was uh, Izzy Stradlin's album. That would be uh, like a, a pinnacle of that time period um, to, to get. So if you've never heard of Izzy Stradlin in the Juju Hounds highly recommend that because it's just fantastic um he's he's i I love the way he wrote music uh but so you know it was like trying to figure out what i I just like with pearl jam i heard them and i kept wondering is this real is this authentic because it just like it almost seemed impossible to me (laughs) that that band was was just as good as they seemed to sound and then the more that i heard from them i watched their unplugged that came out and um you know they recorded it in march of that year i can't remember exactly when it aired it was probably later in that spring or maybe even in the summer before it actually went on air and that summer of 1992 i um managed to scrape together uh the ability with limited funds to um, pick up 10 and a few records or CDs at the time, I should say, and uh, and then just completely delved into the record because it was just so fantastic, and it just spoke to me personally in such a deep, deep way. Um, it, that that you know, as somebody, I not to get t- t- again too deep or off paths, but somebody who had gone through an experience where my father passed away when I was young and you know when you're as you're growing up through your teens and then like to have somebody that's speaking about that in such a passionate way where there's so many of those dots that are on this record um, just it it just it just latched on to me and that was the thing for me it was always about like you know Mm -hmm. I sort of had like this cautious early phase with them where I was like it's just like real <laughs> because this just seems like this guy knows what it's like to be in so much like like feeling a flux and then as you start listening to the music and it just then it got beyond just better's lyrics which were so powerful and his ability to emote those through the vocals and i started listening to the music behind it and i was like this is just off the charts you know, the way that the, the band just sounded and it just slowly started to steamroll to the point where by the time I got to the following year, um, my second year of college, then that's when the, the, you start dabbling in the import singles and friends of mine that um, were all into um, different music at that point. And, and then like when you start to listen to these things that were, yeah, you know, these kind of, they're not their, they're, they're but they're B-sides and you're sitting there going, oh my God, this, this band's B-sides are better than most bands ability to put together their own album. And, uh, it just, that's when I, that's when I was just hooked. I think probably the, the biggest hook for me was listening to mm-hmm. songs like footsteps and wash and just, it just 
made me blown away. And then obviously their cover of I've Got a Feeling, which as I mentioned, Beatles before, I was like, oh my gosh, this band is like, they, they can go back, but they're forward looking. And it just, it just had this crazy sort of emotive energy and it just felt so good. And you could just listen to, uh, to me, I just, it's funny because now I look back on it. I still love 10. I listen to 10. It's probably not my favorite record of theirs, but undoubtedly it, it was the most important piece of art that I ever came across, whether, you know, from reading books, listening to music, seeing movies, all of them can have such profound impact. But 10 was a, a game changer for me. So since you had a foundation of classic rock and sort of the influences uh, that would come to influence Pearl Jam and stuff, you weren't that, I don't know about shocked, but you could hear where they're coming from, right? You could hear the sort of how you combine all that stuff and get what you're listening to on 10, right? Yeah, I, I mean, at first I wasn't, it wasn't that apparent to me, but as I, with each um, subsequent listen, and as obviously also as they evolved out of ten, it their their ability to take the influences they had and put them in the blender and bring them back out is the thing that's the best and most appealing about their music to me is that they are they're really good about recognizing the things that they love about the music that they loved and how to take that and not just repeat it, but how to reinvent it and, and mesh things together that, um, that you, you know, you would never, you'd never really think that you could pull it off from that angle um, or that it could sound something that seems so similar could sound so much different if that makes sense <laughs> no yeah but then uh you also get like the sort of you know especially as you think like sort of later day beatles their experimentation and their sort of how everybody has like okay we got to have some harder songs we have some lighter songs we have some things where we just kind of mess around on them and we just stick it all in the album we don't you know don't save some of this weird stuff for b-sides we'll have uh you know, we'll have good songs that we're uh, we're holding off. You know, we got a whole bunch of good songs, so we'll throw those throw throw those out as B sides. And so then you get something like Master Slave at the end. Did you? What do you do? You get any? Do you personally get anything out of this song, or you think that it has a a place on here on the album? I th- think the thing that I th- that. I get most about master slave is and and it never was in the moment as much as I know in hindsight now is the feeling that that those five guys had in recording this record and the things that impacted them getting to this point in time you often talk about like or hear them talk about how how you just like you know when they when the tape went off the infamous mama san tape went off and Eddie lays down his vocals for that. And that gets back to Jeff and stone. And, you know, you see all of that in the interviews that they did in PJ 20, which is fascinating to hear them reminisce about it. It's that idea of almost dreamscape and the sound of this, the, the sound of the, the, the music that they had, had developed for master slave, it, that 
its lead into once and the extended outro coming off of release is just almost it's that bookend of is this almost in their own minds is this real is this happening to us because i think they all felt that that notion of this feels very powerful and interesting but it almost feels impossible to believe and it had to be for obviously for stone and jeff for what they went through um and thinking like you know because they were they're they're dedicated artists and what they wanted to be, but they also absolutely not just dedicated in the sense of sticking to their, their guns of what they wanted to do. They wanted to make it, you know, that was a thing for them. And then to have the rug pulled out from under them um, and then find themselves not more than gosh, it was what, so that's March of 1990. And then you're into October. So you're what, seven, I don't know, six yeah. months later, you suddenly you have this person thrown at your doorstep. Who's like, sounds really good <laughs> as a lead singer and can fit the bill of these interesting songs that have been written. Um, so it's, to me, it's, it's just, it's the sonic scape of what they're, mindset was and recording this record in such quick and intense fashion i mean they you think about the the time frame of when they went in to record this and the truth is like when you look at the demos and the demos are really really fascinating and interesting to listen to going even back to like october of of 1990 that that mm -hmm. first week of or second week -ish of them playing together and they laid down some music and you know you could listen back to it and be like, well, okay, it sounds really raw and embryonic, but you know, most bands <laughs> would kill for that to be any of their records, <laughs> let alone a demo for their, to, to, to put out, to get the, the opportunity to go into the, the studio and record. And it just, I think that the elements that they put into this, because particularly from everything I've understood about it was Jeff and Ed being in the studio one night and just kind of riffing yeah. off on things and you know the two of them the more you also see again in hindsight their their sort of relationship is very sort of deep and artistic in terms of what they what they bonded on and i think it just it it's a it's a subtle little piece of this record and it can be an afterthought but it's i think it's an important piece because it's it i don't believe the band would put it on there <laughs> even though it's their first, you know, their first attempt at putting out an album together. I don't think that they would have put it there if they didn't feel like it meant something or had value. And I think that from their standpoint, it was like, Hey, this is a, uh, this is such an interesting experience and let's put this sort of, you know, sonic dreamscape just weaved into the, the touch of the beginning before it goes into once and then we'll come back and we'll let the whole thing play out after release did when did you uh discover that this that master slave was the name of this or ever that it ever had a name you know that's a really good question i and i don't have a great answer for that um i probably i'm guessing like maybe in late 1992 or 93 that it had a name to it i didn't really you know obviously back then the internet was a, a 
very, <laughs> very, very uh, um, sort of uh, nascent being was not what it is today. So that, you know, you could not trade information instantaneously as we do now. Um, so the things that you found out and discovered about the band and discovered about the backstory and, uh, and information like that spilled out at a much different rate. So it was not, um, it was, it was well after, um, obviously well after hearing the record and well after, um, delving into, I honestly, I could, I could say that I probably heard verses before I heard the name of this music being master slave. It was always to me just the intro outro. Yeah. I saw, I had this, um, I don't remember where I got it, but there was this, uh, this book about sort of Pearl jam. And so it was like, Oh, this is, you know, how they formed, where they came from and everything like that. And it said, it's like, Oh, it's got the complete discography in the back. And so then, you know, they, all they had was, you know, 10 at that time, but then it went back. It's like, okay, here's the green river records. Here's, you know, mother love bone. And, uh, so then it had, you know, 10 and no, oh, here's the singles. Oh, they had the basketball single and all this other sort of stuff on it. And, uh, then it had the, you know, the album and the songs, the tracks on it and stuff like that. And it said release master slave. It's like, wait, what is that really what this is called? Like, what the heck? Yeah. this was like something that I, I can't remember where I found it, but you know, it's like one of those things that just sort of comes out and tries to take advantage of what's going on at the time but they had they had their information i have it i have that book somewhere i gotta find it again yeah it's you know it's 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 a it's those little things those little details like even you know you look back at the 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 liner notes of the records and and um it's one of those things that you know they especially with the the uh the little these little things that they would put in they never they were always cautious not to, they were just there, you know, they didn't like, Hey, let's, let's call it out. So you didn't have one on verses, yeah. but you obviously, I guess actually now I'm, I'm, I'm not being entirely truthful because if you look at Vitology, the, the thing there, the, <laughs> the crazy, the crazy, I got done, that one is absolutely called out, but the stuff that they put on, um, on yield, the, the hummus track and, yeah. uh, obviously, um, on binaural, and I guess lost dogs and and things of that nature. They always sort of just let those drift out into its own. And even um, their self-titled record, you know, there is that little bit of ambient music that that comes out at the end of uh, Inside Job. Is that? Do you, is that? Uh, maybe I'll wait till I get to the end of that episode. Where there, I, we try to parse if that's an actual part of the song or something they just kind of tack on at the end. Because there's there's like a, at least a second of silence. I don't yeah, know if it's, yeah. I can't remember if it's too long after the song stops. Yeah, it's a it's a few seconds of silence or, or so, and then then something just begins to, to sort of drift in. So right there would be a perfect transition if I had a transition ready for what I wanted to say. Oh damn it! I'm losing it. I'm crashing, man crashing and burning how do you think the experimentation that pearl jam has and puts into their albums fits in with their overall just existence of a band i've always um i'm probably a little bit of an odd duck um i guess because i uh, when i i feel like when i 
see other people talk about this or I, I, you know, try to talk to other people about it. Sometimes it's, um, it, I always appreciated it. Um, Mm -hmm. even such things as bugs and, and stupid mop. Um, I just loved the fact that they were always willing to just air out what they felt and what they, you know, what was on their mind. Um, I think one of the things, um, you know, that's one of the, probably to me, one of the more interesting pieces. And I know some people would probably be like, ah, um, but the, uh, the track I'm open on no code is just has very interesting vibe to me. I'm much Mm -hmm. more personally tuned into that idea. Um, I obviously, you know, the, the music itself, the songs, the song structures themselves are the the most powerful part of what makes their, their record and who they are. Um, but I, I always appreciate their dabbling and their willingness to, um, to experiment and kind of go out on the tightrope a little bit. Um, and, and to expose that type of feeling into their art, because sometimes, it would be easier just to put together a record and this isn't a knock on it, but to put together a record like backspacer, which is pretty just much boom, 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 front to back. And there's no problem with that, but it's, I, I love that they've often put themselves in a spot of saying, let's do something outrageous because why not? (laughs) Um, It's a, it's a little too good looking a person that you think that they might not have a personality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it just, it's, it, I think it, it creates to me, it's that, that ability to say, Hey, yeah, this might be a little bit weird and offbeat, but you know, we're a little bit weird and offbeat and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very nineties to uh, thing too. I think like uh, Kurt, because uh, Kurt Cobain was making little uh, you know tape collages and stuff like that before he was in Nirvana, and I think that's like a real sort of '90s punk aesthetic. I think as far as how you view art when you put that sort of stuff and you know spoken word poetry and putting all these different sounds and everything like that too. I think it's real of the time and that sort of ethos. Absolutely, and I think a lot of the the um the things that again like the art that the 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 artists themselves were consuming um had that element there were things that they you know they the wide array of things that they were bringing into them from whether it was again classic rock like the who or wild offbeat stuff like daniel johnston and and things of that nature is is what creates that sound collage and that that, that element of, of, uh, I don't want to say daring, but that, that idea of just dabbling, I guess is better. Like, you know, let's, let's, it's okay to walk out and not necessarily know exactly what we are saying. It doesn't have to be perfect and succinct and clear. And plus two, I guess the seventies, they did that sort of stuff because they were really high and and so then you grow up and you listen to that and you think it's like, oh, okay, that's just what you do. So that's, you know, you got to have a, a weird thing in there to, to break up the flow. Yeah. I'm a guess. I mean, this could imagine like, you know, if you spend enough time with, uh, with Pink Floyd records and, um, 
you know, and I'm not talking about like anything like, uh, you know, like wish you were here after, which is probably more straightforward, um, Pink Floyd than, than some of their, their other earlier pieces. But I mean, you think about it, even with the Beatles, the Beatles did some weird, interesting things oh, on yeah. their records. You know, it was, uh, it, they were, they had got to a point, they went from, you know, I want to hold your hand to a gradual sort of, Hey, you know, freak let's, out. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's see what it sounds like. If we just have constant chaos and noise at the end of this song. <laughs> To the, the the bands then though sort of worked into it they they kind of established okay we're we're good we're rock people like us let's see how far we can go with this and fool around with synthesizers and all this sort of stuff yeah no not yet all of them were it was more of a gradual phase to uh, of experiment whereas yeah, if you had a band like the Flaming Lips, they were like, <laughs> they're you know you listen to their early records, which are fascinating. Yeah. Um, they they basically just right off the rip were like, well, let's see how weird we can get yeah. it. Yes, it's it's different. If you you know if you want to be a rock star, you do one thing, and then if you want to be an artist, you know you do something completely different. Yep. Was there anything else we gotta we gotta get out about this song? It's just like two things that sh- strike me. One going back to what I was about the uh, the dreamscape element, the the one sort of clear line that Vetter enunciates at the beginning as they go into once and as they come out of release. Um, I believe the lyric is or not lyric, but he's saying, um, "I ain't wasting no time." Is mm-hmm. the thing that he comes in there, and I think that goes again back to that aesthetic that they had of of that being in the moment of wanting to get right at it. And just like that, this is such an interesting experience. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, take it for granted. It was, it was the feeling I get from that. And then the other thing that I would say about number two is uh, fascinating is in 1996 in Barcelona at a sound check. Okay. At their one of their more famous shows, they they happen to have their sound check recorded by some intrepid fans in the audience. And the second track, I believe it's the second track, which has often been labeled as instrumental, um, is um, if you listen to it and you listen to Master Slave, it is basically Jeff Immens' bass line from Master Slave. And in the sound check, he's just got it sped up a bit. Just a tad. Um, And I did not ever pick Mm -hmm. up on this until um, about... Uh, what, when, when was it that I that uh, I had you had emailed me about? Hey, if you want to do corduroy, let's do Master Slave, and I said, sure, let's do that. Um, and I started listening, and I was like, that sounds so familiar. I hadn't listened to this in so long with intent, and I was like, I feel like I've heard that. And I went back because I was like, I got to listen to that sound check, and it is he is noodling for a few minutes um, 
plus of time on on Master Slave with just a little bit of a of a a slightly sped up beat to it, and it's just sort of out of the blue mm. at a sound check that a fan happens to have decided that hey, I'm gonna pop out my recorder to record the sound check, and I the things like that just the those those like fascinating coincidences of life um, start to strike me. I'm like. How in the world did someone decide to be present to record that sound check and for it to be that thing? Um, so, is there any? Uh, oh wait, no wait. Was there one thing I thought of? Yeah, I think the the it's it's really emblematic of the experimentation of sort of Eddie making up lyrics that maybe are mostly mumbling, but maybe are just some words he has stuck in his head of just the, the just vocalization. I don't even, I don't know if it's singing or yelling or whatever. It's just, you get, you get emotion in that. And I think that that really, that's a real good end page sort of, uh, Oh crap. What the heck index in the back of the book? I don't know. Wait, no, not an index. What the heck am I thinking of? I don't know. Just a postscript post, not post log, the thing from Harry Potter, the, and eulogy, no, damn it! <laughs> what the, what's, it's uh, something like that. What the hell's the word? Postscript. <laughs> no, it's not the event. <laughs> not a post log. The, the the after the credits of Avengers. The <laughs> let's call it an appendix. Yeah, yeah. It's their it's their post. We'll just leave it with that. It's their it's their post credit scene. Oh man, I get it. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> I think that works. That works. It is. It's their post credit scene. I think, and it, it you know it it definitely is. I mean, it's it it it. It, again, it shows it, their artistic range. It shows his artistic range. And I think it had a lot to do with the vibe. And the reason that I think that they were willing to tack it on to release, I guess, in some way, is also that the, the way that release as a song was born. I mean, it's, it, you know, they kind of were, I guess, Stone was just sort of jamming on that riff. And Ed just started letting lyrics flow. And, you know, he, I mean, you believe in sort of the mythology of it. I, I don't have any reason to doubt any of their stories that, 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 that he just kind of on the spot, let yeah. most of that song out. And I think that's the, I think that's a little bit of what the, you know, for lack of a better term, the echo of, of master slave is that just sort of vamping on, you know, that, that moment and that sort of freedom of thought. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, projects or social media you want to give a shout out to right now i don't have any projects um or social media um i mean i have social media that's yeah, that's totally fine um but um project wise i guess the only thing i could say is that um very shortly i will be recording my second stint on live on four legs um, oh yeah so beyond that uh very soon um and uh talking about uh, a great show from 2003 hey now so yeah listen listen to the other pearl jam podcasts it's all it's all good stuff this isn't this can't cover everything this can't scratch all your itches for you get them get get all the other ones i again i go back to what we were talking about earlier it's that to me it's like it's so fascinating that all of a sudden there's just and i love the the different 
angles that people are coming from. There's some yeah. people that have been fans of the band for a long time. Um, there's people that are, are, you know, very new to the music and it just, it's great because I love to see it through people's eyes that are new to it because I've been, you know, listening for a long time. So it gives a little bit of a different perspective um, and trying to understand like what it would be like to, if I had happened to discover the band a few years ago. Um, so it's, 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 it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting time and, and, uh, and place to be a fan with all of this happening. The Better Band Podcast is produced by ListenUpReno.com and Brandon Palomo and published using a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 license. Please visit creativecommons.org or email listenupreno at gmail.com for more details. All music played is owned by the respective publishers and copyright holders and is reproduced for review purposes only under fair use. You can subscribe to the Better Band Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or from shoutengine.com slash thebetterbandpodcast using your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ListenUpReno. I am on Twitter at BrandENP. If you have anything you'd like to say about these songs, send your emails or stories to betterbandpod at gmail.com and I'll read them on the season finale episode. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Patrick. And as always, this is Brandon saying, Are cartoons too violent for children? Most people would say, No, of course not. What kind of stupid question is that? <laughs> <laughs>